Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right. I'm excited for this week. I love this band. We are going to kick off what will probably end up being about five straight weeks of big British bands who were at the peak of their success in the 80s. And these are bands that have songs you know, big hits, everybody knows and loves these bands. And we're starting with Eddie McDonald, who was the bass player for The Alarm, one of the best bands there's ever been that's ever done this stuff. Eddie was the music guy, frontman Mike Peters was the lyrics guy, and together they made some of the most anthemic, life-affirming, spirit-raising, blood-pumping type anthemic rock there's ever been. I mean, you remember the big music movement of the 80s with U2 and Big Country and Simple Minds? These guys were there. They were doing it too. And they were doing it better than most. This song right here that you're listening to, Change, remember how great this was? Well, that's what they did a lot of, and they did it really well. And unfortunately, it never quite crossed over into the mainstream. I think that ultimately took a toll on them, and Eddie and I talk about that in here. The frustration of doing what you think is so good, but having it not quite connect to the masses. Uh, Now, in the early 90s, if you saw that episode of Bands Reunited, Mike Peters sort of left abruptly in the early 90s, and that brought an end to the band. He's still out there doing his thing, but the band as we knew it ended right then and there. Now, luckily, Eddie was able to pivot and has become a very successful and very well-regarded photographer. He's been doing that for like 25 years, and he's great at it. And in the last couple of years, he's finally getting back into music. He's got a new band called Small Town Glory. They've got an EP out there on iTunes. If you like the alarm, check out Small Town Glory. It's the same kind of stuff. It's so good. We also talk in here about why there has never really been a full-on reunion. Eddie seems really up for it. And i got to be honest, I think we're both a little confused as to why that has not happened. I've always thought that Mike Peters seemed like the nicest guy in the entire world. I I even met him briefly, and he was so kind and earnest. And yet, it's never happened, and it's got to be because, I don't know, maybe he just doesn't want it, or it's not worth it to him, or he's got his thing going on. If anything, I feel like I beat a little bit of a dead horse in this conversation because I'm really trying to figure out why this would be, and I don't think either of us know. But um, hopefully one day, I'll be fully transparent with you, I tried to get Mike on here to give his side of the story, not to pit anyone against, but just to hear what he thought, and I was turned down. Hopefully some other day, maybe that will happen. Also, I got to tell you, I made a mistake in here. I, um, while we were talking, when I record these things, I'm on the home computer in my office and I got big chunky headphones on. And while we were talking about certain songs, I sometimes played those songs while we were talking, thinking that they weren't being recorded, but unfortunately they were. I've had it, I've done it before and they weren't, but for whatever reason, this time they were. So a couple of times you may hear us talking about a song and then hear that song faintly being played in the background. That is my bad. Now that I know that it happened, I won't do it again. I'm sorry. But anyway, Eddie was great. I think you guys will love this, especially if you're Alarm fans. He called me from his home in England. The thing that I've always wondered about the Alarm is that because your songs are so anthemic, every song on every album reaches this level of epicness, of anthemic quality. And I wondered sometimes if that was a very, if that was an exhausting goal to set for yourself. And, or was it even a goal? Was it just, that's just what happened when you and Mike got together? Anthemic songs were easier than pop songs? How did this work? Good question. I mean, Anybody who ever picks up a guitar sometimes either wants to play somebody else's song 
or create something from scratch. I was just basically try and write songs that moved me. That was the basic thing. If I couldn't, I'd write a song. If I couldn't remember it, I knew it probably wasn't worth remembering. So mm. it was a case of setting a stall. I always imagine myself back to the day when I saw my first ever gig. Um, the first ever show I ever saw was Slade Ooh. in the UK. Nice. And um, I was about 12. I'd run away from home, literally, to do Ooh. that. My parents didn't know what had happened to me. Um, a friend of mine, um, John, and I, we made our way to Liverpool. And my life changed at that moment because I realised, apart from just obviously seeing, the, hearing an audience, feeling the music, you know, coming out literally, my ears are ringing, my voice had gone, my, my, all my senses had been battered. And in a funny kind of way, that stayed with me from, from day one. The idea that a, an audience could be moved and united mm. through music. And it just changed everything in my life. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, I was never what I saw myself a great musician, but like punk rock to me said, sometimes you have to go back to basics. And so when we write a song, it was a case of, okay, how can you in the most accessible way move an audience mm. and that was the basis of basically how i used to write and then the way mike and i used to work was basically a lot of the times i used to come up with a sort of the melody and maybe and maybe a key line and then mike and i would work together and then we put the songs together because we both had a similar vision i think his mm. taste on music was sort of or takes on music is very similar to mine and mm. as a unit it was our band and that was what we were trying to achieve got it were well, you I mean, more um, the music guy and he was more the lyric guy or did it was yeah. it okay okay yeah it was yeah okay. mike's a very he's a very talented lyricist yeah and probably very i mean the declaration album um mm -hmm. i think the lyrics on that album are to me i didn't know how he did it album i mean uh, the, the amount of time and detail he went into doing it i mean it was a very very i was very proud of the album very proud of the songs as well good, and i think good. you know it, it was a, it was very good to have that yeah to talk to tour uh so two questions from this number one well let's just go here so what what are you is there a moment on that first album that clicked where you were especially proud when you two because you you guys start out in that uh more of like a punk or power pop band, 17, and a song like Don't Let Go. Every time I see your face, I've got to move away. Oh, and every time I see you near me, I've got to move away. Oh, 
I mean, that's a fun three-minute, you know, boppy song you'd hear on the radio. But it's nothing like what The Alarm would do just a couple of yeah, years true. after that. Mm. So, well, what... I, I, was uh, young, what? I was a young... Sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. I was, was going to say, that was just basically... You know, young people start off, you know, you, you work, you, you're trying to find your, your footing in the world and where your style and your technique of writing songs and playing them, and also your ability... Because Seventeen started off as a three-piece, hmm. and that was a sort of material at the time we were writing. And then we were joined by Dave Sharp, and then Dave brought a level of musicianship to the alarm mm-hmm. that hadn't previously existed. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very talented, very gifted player. And of course, when that happens, you then have to adapt your writing technique as well it gives you much more scope than mm. when you start out so that again so that's why there's a huge difference because really even though don't let go dave is on it it was written previously to dave arriving mm. so mm. it all grew from then onwards so okay that probably explains the reason yeah in the difference so when you mike and dave come together and nigel too but when you guys come together and you start forming what would become the alarm you mentioned being proud of that declaration album as you should be it's a it's a masterpiece. Was there a moment during the writing or the recording where you were like, this is it. This is a, uh, we nailed it on this one. When it came to know. fruition? No, I, to be honest with you, I think most artists would probably say this, is that you're never happy with your work. I think sometimes like an artist can probably go over on the same canvas time and time again until they finally, either they're starving and they have to make sure they have to sell the canvas to be able to eat and live. I think declaration for that to me was that i was never happy musically with the record really why i I believe declaration could have been a better record if we'd have had more time because i believed in the songs but some of the recording to me wasn't as accomplished as it could be um and i think in a funny kind of way it's our first album sort of proper Uh album we'd we'd had the stand ep out which was again i actually preferred the recording of the stand EP or elements of it prior to declaration because it was much more natural.
I think we were thrown into a situation where, you know, we were gifted to go into Abbey Road Studios to record the album, mm-hmm. which and in, we recorded it in Studio Two. Mm-hmm. And so any sort of um, Beatles aficionados and Pink Floyd would probably go, I can't mm-hmm. believe you've recorded, you know, your first <laughs> album in that studio. We were incredibly fortunate. Yeah. But I still believe that we had a lot of learning still to do musically. But the songs-wise, I mean... They, they proved their worth because every time we took the songs out live, we built mm-hmm. all our following initially from our live performances. I can and, imagine. Um, so in a sense, every time there's a song, there's one song on the album that I've got a live version of somewhere called Howling Wind. favorite song writing on the record i love playing really? it live i loved it absolutely but on record it just didn't to me have the flavor of what huh. a great recording is okay so in a sense you can see that when you write an album sometimes you know you write it you've got to get back on tour you've got to go and do your things yeah but if i could turn back the clock again i would probably be a real spoiler and say i would probably have re-recorded certain tracks definitely on the record interesting so do you i mean that that album means so much to so many people though i mean don't do you think that was there sort of a a live energy or um maybe some tension or a volume or something relating to when you were performing and writing those songs that you just weren't hearing when you heard the final version on the album I think so. I mean, that's a very good, a very good way of putting it. I, I think you're spot on because when you hear a sound in your head and mm-hmm. you, you feel something, trying to capture that sometimes takes time, takes insight, ability, and craft from ships to actually be able to do that. Sometimes you strike gold. Mm. Sometimes you have to dig and dig and dig and pan for it, and it can take you know hours. And I think, in a funny kind of way, Declaration, we were still panning for gold on that one. Oh. Um, and we got some definitely little nuggets in there, but we didn't quite hit the pure um, stream of gold on it. So, I mean, it was strange because I remember at radio, I mean, sort of lead track, everyone sort of ran with the 68 guns, and it was definitely in the UK. And now they're trying to take my life away
And it's a song that, uh, in, the, in the rest of the world that we were sort of known for. But it's very grand in its delivery. But when, I used to say that when I hear it on American radio, it never sounds as good as it sounded in my head. <laughs> so, really? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, I've... I had this... I was a moody sod because I used to... Every time the record was about to come out, I was always the one who was about to leave the band because I hated the record. <laughs> But oh, that's too bad. That, I mean, the, you could ask the other guys, and it's like all of a sudden I'd throw a straw. I see it's really hard being in a band. The hardest thing in the world is being in a group because you want to be, you're a unit. You're, you're a, you know, you're a fighting combo, and you all play off each other. But you don't want one person being the dissenter in the group and say, okay, I don't <laughs> like this, because you sound like a real killjoy. Right. But at the end of the day, I always said, if the, the better the record the more people get to hear it. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Now, were you happier with strength? I mean, honestly, I, I prefer strength. <laughs> I, I don't even, I wouldn't even go there on strength. <laughs> to me, that's the, what? I, no, 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 I left the band on that one as well. I came back what? and Mike Peters did, um, I, did, I think he had an alternative mix of the album, which he um, sort of did something with, I think he put out somewhere. And um, he would probably echo my sentiments on this one. Again, love the songs. Absolutely love the songs. The recording of the record, to me, didn't do the, the songs justice. No way. So, yeah, absolutely. The only album I ever liked was Change. sound of the alarm and for some people you know who stayed with us they uh -huh. probably go i can hear what you think yeah, it, it's, yeah. A, it's a rounded recording and of course we recorded with tony visconti yeah which was like my, yeah honestly yeah. my he was my dream producer as a kid because i had nearly every record he produced by bowie and t-rex and sure. lizzie they were like staples of my record collection for uh -huh. me i was actually in seventh heaven Going back to strength, if I wish if we'd only recorded with Visconti on on strength and either Hurricane, I think we'd probably be having a different conversation at this point. That is so <laughs> fascinating! I can't believe it for a band as you know just impactful as you guys were and so beloved by people today. I mean, you it's not going back to this anthemic quality. These are not just you know frivolous little pop songs. These these are life changers. And to this think that the point. guy, yeah, that the guy who wrote these anthems is sitting back there like, eh, I'm not happy with them, you know. Whereas no, millions mean, of yeah, us are like loving it. The difference between songs, the difference between songs and records. Oh, okay. okay. If you were at the concert and you hear it and you'd go, okay, then basically, the honesty would be when you're playing a song live, 
and you're feeling it and the audience are feeling it. There's a very honest kind of thing because it's very, it's, there's no middleman. There's nothing, there's no vinyl, mm-hmm. there's no business, there's nothing, there's just you and an audience. And at that point, it's, you know, um, it's the confessional. You're, yeah. you're giving your all and you're telling mm-hmm. the truth. And that's exactly how it is. So when you say about songs, I've already got any regrets of any of the songs that we ever written. No, not at all. Okay. Have I got regrets about some of the recordings that were made of those songs? And undoubtedly, yes. Mm. Uh, that's fascinating. Now, I want to go album by album, but I'm going to take a break here to read something to you. The, the guy who asked me to track you down is named Brian Morris. And he sent me a he sent me a message. I won't read the whole thing, but he basically says my story of alarm fandom began on September 28th, 1983. And maybe apparently now I've been a fan. I've been an alarm fan forever, but I didn't know about this. But apparently this particular show has gained some infamy over the years. He is a kid in Long Island, New York, and he hears a live broadcast uh, but he misses the beginning, so he doesn't know who the band is. It's on this station called WLIR. It's taking place in a small town called Roslyn, I believe, at a place called My Father's Place. And oh, he, yeah. he's yeah. completely knocked out by what he's hearing. Everything, the, the passion and the personality and all of it coming together is just blowing his mind. And at the very end, it says, you know, this was the alarm. And I guess the show, clo- you guys closed the show with a version of Maggie May. Okay, so he wondered if anything, if that show, if you had any specific memories or stories that tie back to that particular show. And I don't even know, is that, was that a meaningful show for you or was he just hearing one of many? Do you know what? I'll be honest with you. Some of those early shows we played around the New York York area, to me, were mind-blowing to me because first of all, I'm from a small town in Rill, called Rill in North Wales. Mm. And... To, even to get to America was like a dream come true, sure. to be honest with you. And some of the early shows we did, you could I wouldn't say you could basically, you could meet and name the audience. <laughs> but it was like, okay, because no one knew who we were. Yeah. It was great. So the anonymity of a new band going to America for the first time is quite liberating because you can make your own story in a sense, which is great. So you do get to meet the audience. 
Mm-hmm. And we've always been sort of personable people because I believe if you don't listen to an audience, you, you, you spend all your time in your own little world. And um, the one thing that the alarm could do is also grow with their audience. And that's why sometimes we challenge our audience as well with different music. And people stayed with us, which was incredible. You know what I mean? So you're incredibly grateful for people to give you their ear time, if yeah. nothing else. So looking back to the early shows, a lot of them now, to me, probably feel a distant memory away. Mm. I do remember some early shows. I, m- I remember the one in the, the Ritz in New York. I think mm. that was, um, to me, because I knew of the venue. And also, as well, because obviously, um, well, Bono used to sort of jump on stage and Facebook. <laughs> It actually provided me one of the funniest moments ever. It was where um, Dave Sharp had bought this. We were wearing hats at the time. Okay. <laughs> On we top of your to, gigantic hair? We, yeah, exactly. I think we decided to, uh, yeah. I, I know, yeah, they were sort of combining the two at the time. Because okay. before really big hair came in, it was, it was um, the interim was hats. Okay. And for some reason, Bono turned up on stage with Dave Sharp's brand new hat. <laughs> and I think he threw it into the audience, which really <laughs> cheesed him off. No and way. it's really funny because when you're on tour, the last thing you're thinking about is, uh, there is like one of rock music's icons <laughs> nicking my hat, throwing it into right. the audience. And you suddenly realize that life actually on the road is brilliant. I actually <laughs> really miss it. Do I you? Say, I every night, every audience, there was always a special moment Yeah, where you... You know, even now it brings a sort of tear to my eye because we had so many wonderful shows with such wonderful audiences throughout the States and throughout the world. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, some of the funniest moments in my life have happened. One, in fact, one of them happened in New York, actually. At, um, we played the show with the Pretenders mm. on the probably, obviously, a couple of tours down the line after the one you mentioned. Sure. And, uh, yeah, it, it's one of the funniest things ever happened on stage. It was brilliant. And like, can I, have I got time yes. to tell you a quick story? Uh, please, that's what we're here for, is to hear these stories. Tell me. Yeah, it's a fantastic. <laughs> it was really, really funny. Um, we'd arrived from, I think, Boston quite late for soundcheck at Radio City. And uh, the guy said, I'm sorry, because due to like, where you've set, you're going to have to set up in front of the, basically in front of the safety curtain mm. they've got, and which is, you know, quite close to the audience, which really... It was great for me because I didn't want to be miles back, you know, and a huge gap between yourselves and the audience. It's not a festival, it's a gig. Mm-hmm. So we said, yeah, fine. So we, we set up really close to the front of the stage. And we didn't have any of the normal lights that people have overhead. And we did the whole show on spotlights, <laughs> which was fantastic. Obviously, we went into cool. darkness a lot of the time. Yeah. But, you know, we, yeah. we didn't know what we were doing. So it was great. It was just really good. It was a kind of freedom that we've cool. never experienced, really. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. So... We're actually doing the gig, and I think we're into about the second or third song. And um, we're sort of doing a bit of what we used to call our little tower of power, where, you know, we'd all be down by each other on the floor, Mike would be in the air. And we were doing this one bit of the song, and I thought, hmm, it's going on for quite a long time. Why is Mike <laughs> not going back to the microphone to uh, do it? And it's going on and on, and I'm thinking, okay. He's, and the, no, the crowd are into it. I thought, okay, fine. He's feeling the crowd, and I'm feeling it. Everyone's feeling great. Uh-huh. Dave departs the scene. Um, he's over by his amp, and I thought, okay, next mic. And I'm still there thinking, next minute I look up, and he's shouting at me, can you get off my effing coat? <laughs> I went, 
oh shit, I didn't realise I was actually, I was standing on his coat and he couldn't leave because he couldn't oh, move his Oh, that's so great. And I suddenly thought, okay, we're about, I mean, in those days you're only gifted about 45 minutes and I just think we probably just burnt about 12 of those. Oh, that's coat. terrible. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, just moments like that you're thinking, Okay, that was quite funny. And I must yeah. admit, we came off stage and it was so funny. I had a tear in my eye. It was so funny because I had this vision that he was shouting at me and I obviously, for the music, I couldn't hear him. Oh, that's and great. Anyway, it's little things like that. Yeah. You're thinking, yeah, okay, that was, yeah, little moments. I think um, another one, a good friend of mine, Ray Robinson, got to see you guys in Boulder, Colorado back in the day. And, oh yes and I, I know where you're coming from it's and just, if I remember correctly tell me, tell you me. guys the stage is on one end of like a giant basketball oh. you know arena yeah. and you guys no. are going to enter from the other end or something can, like can that can I just stop you can I stop yes, you right? please tell me I, I, I'm going to follow this story through right <laughs> the stage manager now for Bob Dylan John Red Edwards right uh-huh. he's a cool dude you can imagine him at the time, 1983, big red Mohican, right? Uh-huh. Everybody loves red. He's, a, he's an absolute, he's a, he's a saint, absolutely brilliant guy, and he's very talented. He also made some really great observations about when we were forming the band, because he was with us on tour, and he was basically looking after, obviously, um, the drums at the time, but he was our sort of go-to sort of... Um, the Clash used to have a guy called Cosmo Vinyl. He used mm. to sort of, like, be their sort of mentor and give them ideas and... And Red was our sort of like Cosmo, right? And he said, I tell you what, you want to make a big impression? Come down the stairs from the top of the arena. This is the, mm-hmm. bearing in mind, this is the night after we were meant to play Red Rocks when they did Under a Blood Red Sky yep. film. I believe um, my buddy so, Ray was at that show too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we were gutted. We really wanted to play Red Rocks that day, mm-hmm. but the weather was so bad, and it was a touch and go whether the show would happen. As it turns out, it's probably the best decision you two ever made um, to go on stage that night. Created but the night after we, yeah, the night after we basically did um, like a free show at Boulder for everybody who couldn't yep. get to, obviously get to the gig. So, remember in time, no one had seen this band from Wales. No one had any idea. So when Red Eye said, "Why don't you make a big entrance?" coming down the stairs with your guitars the first mistake a band can make is first of all they didn't count how many stairs there were down to the stage secondly how long your intro tape was going to run for and how precarious those stairs are in a sort of um, I think it's a basketball stadium or whatever it is it, it was huge it was like okay by the time the emperor's new clothes have arrived they'd, they'd got so many moth-bitten bits by the time we got to the stage right, right. We, the music had stopped playing and it was like a deadly silence <laughs> so it was not this sort of all on the chariot riding into right. the arena it's sort of like petered out but ironically, we got on stage, and the first thing that happened is somebody chucked a quarter at us. Really? <laughs> yeah, and I think it hit the, one of the guitars. Oh, no. And I thought, to be honest with you, Red, that was not your best idea, and in fact, the quarter was probably the right kind of payment for that idea. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> but oh, the audience no were brilliant, and sure. at the end of the night, it was, um, yeah, I think we've made a few more friends. We put them over. So Good. start at the bottom, work your way up. <laughs> That's great. That. Don't start at the top, work your way down. Oh, good. Oh, I'm so glad. I love these stories. That's what it's all about. Very cool. I want to ask you about uh, the idea of the music again. Uh, in retrospect, 
we know now that there was sort of this big music movement happening at the time with bands like U2, You Guys, Big Country, Simple Minds. People are starting to sort of like go for this like stadium filling rock and roll. Were you conscious of that as a movement at the time? Or is that something that has been labeled on what you guys were doing after the fact? Do you know what? I'm going to fight it back. I think I think mm. the, the music we were making at the time, and and even you too, big country. I think it was music to move people. Ah, was, good. We had we had a thing where you you know we were up against I suppose like the sort of spandex rock and roll sort of. I wouldn't say old school metal, but mm-hmm. it was. And mm-hmm. we weren't a metal band. I mean, mm-hmm. let's be honest about it. We were different. And I think the kind of music you know, and the bands like the Cult, we were sort of pretty lambasted. I think. For all the wrong reasons, I think music that moves moves people and also has lyrics that actually inspire or maybe sometimes confront, they um, motivate, and subject matter that has ground into it, I think should never be underestimated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes music is of the age and of the time, of the people, and I think that's where we were coming from. Okay. We never saw it as let's fill stadiums, let's sell shirts, let's yeah. sell, you know, let's sell crap. Mm-hmm. It was more a case of we were making music that we believed in and that the people knew was genuine. It came from people who were speaking from the heart. Got and it. To be honest with you, I have got no regrets at Good. all about anything in terms of the music that we made. And I'm very, still very, very proud of it. Nowadays, I don't know what people tend to write about. There aren't many people mm. who write from, I would say, the heart. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yep. Yep. you know, we weren't writing love songs. You know what I mean? We were writing from about the spirit. Yeah. Yep. You know oh, I mean? that's well and, said. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Were you friendly with those guys? Did you, I, I imagine you must have toured with or knew Simple Minds and Big Country pretty well? Big Country, I didn't know that well. I mean, obviously, you two, I think, were the most generous people. Mm. Good. You know, I know nowadays everybody loves to bash them because they're so megaly successful. I hate that. And yeah, I don't get it. Yep. You know what I mean? But the thing yep. about it was they were the most generous people to us. And, um, you know, uh, I think the, one of the things, I mean, it, they took a, an unknown group with no record sales. They could have taken, at the time when they were doing the water, they could have taken nearly any band in the world on tour with them. Mm-hmm. And they took the alarm on tour. And I mean, Bono's the person to ask about asking why he took the alarm on tour. I mean, that was probably the best thing rather than me say yeah. you know, about it. Ask him. If you ever yeah. get a chance to ask him, ask him. Ask I would do that. Band. Yeah. And um, they were very genuine people and they were brilliant to us. And um, sometimes in life, you're fortunate. And we nearly, it's kind of ironic because Eddie and his big mouth nearly got <laughs> us in trouble with you too. We did a show really? in London with them. Yeah. I mean, I was really pissed. I mean, what happened? Oh. We were meant to do a show in the Lyceum in London. Okay. Uh-huh. We turned up, you know, four o'clock on the dot, ready to do our sound check. No you 2 Oh. Five o'clock, no you 2 I thought, where the, where, where are you? You know what I mean? Hold <laughs> right. on a minute. This is out of order. Our sound guy um, was trying to get in the venue and couldn't, and he got banned from the venue, so we had no sound guy. At this point, it's all not going well, as you can imagine this picture. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you two turn up, bless their souls. They've been in London mm. Christmas shopping. Oh! Okay, <laughs> okay. not yeah. high on my agenda. I have to You're be totally right. honest about that. It wasn't <laughs> my thinking, hold on a minute, this is rocket. you don't go Christmas shopping. 
come on, I learned in future, it's very important to get your friends, your family and your loved ones presents, especially when you're on tour and you haven't got much time to do it. So don't slag people off when they do do it. But at the time, I'm 22, 23, I was cheesed off. I was not happy. And anyway, so I'm moaning my arse of going, this is not fair, we're not getting a sound check. And a guy called John Curd pulls me to one side and goes, you arse. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. I don't know if you're familiar with Blackadder. Yes, but in a very, oh, yeah. Yeah, in a very Blackadder kind of way, going, you stupid arse. <laughs> don't you realise this is probably one of the best opportunities? And of course, you know, Mr. Mouthy is still going off on one, saying, uh-huh. ah, no, no, you know what I mean? But anyway... We did the gig, and it changed our lives. Yeah. Oh man. So it proves at times. Oh man. You don't. You can. You can slightly. You know what I mean. My yeah. heart was in the right place. I sure. believe I wanted to do the best show ever because I believe it was the best opportunity ever. But my mouth nearly blew it, and I'm glad that the guys shut me up. And oh. you know, we got on stage and did the gig and let the music do the talking. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But they did many great things for us. I mean, um, I think the best one ever was um, towards the end of that tour. We were traveling in a minibus. We'd nearly killed ourselves about two or three times on that mm. tour. We drove into LA. Twist was driving um, the van, bless his soul, and he, he fell asleep at the wheel. Uh, so of course. Oh, how man. he even made that tour, how we actually survived it, I don't know, because literally we were doing it in the transit, and mm-hmm. a lot of the times we were sleeping in it. In the end, you 2 gave us their tour bus for the last leg of their tour. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, amazing. that's great. Were you ever disheartened or annoyed at all by the U2 comparisons? I mean, I've been kind of lumping everybody. I don't, I, I'm lumping people in by sort of a style or a, a focus, not so much a sound, but I, that has happened to the alarm as being sort of like U2's little brothers. Did that ever bother you? Because it seems unfair nah, to me. I mean, it's like, you know, sometimes it's like a movement. People, you know, it's like beat poets. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sometimes you get, you, you all get tar- or say tarred with a similar sort of brush. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, we had a similar approach to how we did gigs and we had a similar approach to maybe how we felt our songs would go in terms of some of the um, sentiment in them because we were probably, we were all children of the same age. True. So we were all feeling the same sort of things at the same sort of time. Right. And there are going to be echoes, you know, you know, we'd watch them play live. They'd watch us play live. You know, mm-hmm. we'd hear songs. We'd play them songs before we'd released. You know, they used to come to the studio. We'd play them songs. I mean, you know, I was obviously in the studio when they were p- doing stuff for albums. That's and so crazy. you'd hear each other's material and times, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, you know, sometimes it'd, you know, blow your way up. People, you know, people are going to hear, wow, you've got this coming out. This is going to sound amazing. Yeah. You know, like hearing Pride before, you know. It came oh, out. And it was just wow. Thinking, wow, wicked, you know. We were, yeah. you know... um friend's wedding uh, manager's wedding at the time you know and Paul McGuinness played it's just incredible you know we were very fortunate to be like a fly on the wall yeah yeah at that time and also also be in the room doing what we do so sure uh, sure yeah it's it's good good for you good for you okay I want to go to Eye of the Hurricane uh that one Mm. comes out it's Rain in the Summertime is one of my all-time favorite songs I've got lots of all-time favorite alarm tracks but that's up there for sure Hey gang, let me break in here for a minute with a little bit of business. Plus, Rain in the Summertime, one of the best songs ever. Give you a chance to kind of soak that one up for a minute. I just want to thank everybody who went out of their way to help make the Sananda Matreya episode uh, kind of blow up, for us anyway. 
he uh, he shared it with his fans and it took off. That thing was shared almost 60 times. And I know most podcasts read off all those names and I probably should. Truthfully, it was a lot of Europeans whose names I would probably butcher anyway. But um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to do that, but I'm so grateful for everyone who put in the effort. And I will tell you, uh, there was a, there's a lot to talk about that went on behind the scenes. That interview was a trip. I know I've heard from a lot of you, your thoughts and opinions on it. I'm with you. I will tell a lot of those stories in our next recap episode, which will be at the end of this month. And we are lucky to have listener Andy Schall join us for that episode. Andy donated a hundred bucks to be our special guest for this uh, recap at the end of June. And we're going to be talking about that and all the episodes of the last two months. We're going to do two more of those. We're going to do one every two months. And the one at the end of the year will just be Yan and I kind of recapping the year. So we're going to do one at the end of August. That one is spoken for. And we're going to do one at the end of October. What you do is if you want to donate 100 bucks, you can hop on Skype with Yan and I. We're going to recap the last two months of episodes, kind of give our thoughts, opinions. Um, we can share any behind-the-scenes stuff. Yan can chime in his thoughts on things. And uh, we'll answer some listener questions. And then you, whoever you are, the special guest, you bring with you a top three topic of your choice. Whatever it is. Top three Yacht Rock songs of the 70s. Top three guitarists of all time. Top three drum solos. Whatever you want, you give Yan and I a couple of weeks heads up. We will put together our lists and we'll come on and we'll share that list with everyone else. Each of us bringing our top three tracks of your choice, okay? That's how this is gonna work for a $100 donation. Uh, and it'll be really fun to talk about Terrence Trent Darby and uh, what went on. <laughs> oh goodness, what went on with that uh, episode, making that happen. So Andy's the lucky guy who gets to discuss that with us. Also, I, uh, I wanna thank everyone for checking out our bonus episode from last week, that my conversation with director John Brewer. I. You guys know I'm a Bowie fanatic. This documentary, Beside Bowie, is so great. And if you haven't heard of it, it's the it's the story of Bowie's guitarist, Mick Ronson, who is one of the greatest guitarists ever, at least in my mind. And you don't realize all that he brought to artists like Bowie and Lou Reed and even John Mellencamp in his arrangements and his productions. And it is fascinating. It's currently on Hulu. I've heard it's also on Amazon Prime. And the reason we talked is because the soundtrack to that movie finally came out last week, and it's excellent as well. It's got uh, three, I believe, Bowie songs that if you're a Bowie fan, you probably already have. But the other, like, 12 tracks are all, you know, kind of rare uh, Mick Ronson solo things that you probably are less familiar with. There's a Joe Elliott uh, cover on there. Mike Garson, Bowie's uh, piano player, does a... Uh, sort of a, a tribute to Mick Ronson on there. There's a lot, the Freddie Mercury concert, I, I accidentally or mistakenly mentioned in the intro to that interview that there was a song from Live Aid on there. I didn't mean that. It's a, it's a couple tracks from the Freddie Mercury tribute concert that Mick played in. Anyway, it's great. So check that out too, okay? Now, I'm gonna keep this one short because uh, Eddie and I, this, this uh, interview is already kind of on the longer side. I did want to read off some recent reviews we've received on iTunes. Once again, I am so grateful that any of you bother to take the time to write us a review. It means the world to us. Thank you so much. 
Um, let's kick it off here with five minute music reviews. This one's a little long, so I'll be quick. This is one of my favorite podcasts, five stars. The Hustle is one of the best and most important pod, important, wow, podcasts I listen to each week. John highlights musicians that had their period of success and are now living regular lives. John finds out what it was like to have a moment in the sun, and he finds out what it's like to live today with that moment in the rearview mirror. These interviews are thoughtful and engaging and fun to hear. He asks the questions that you'd ask if you could interview one of your favorite musicians from back in the day. What makes John's interviews truly remarkable, wow, that is humbling, truly remarkable, is that he brings an energy of respect and admiration to the interviews. It's part journalism and part fandom, and it's a combination that works really well. These musicians need to know just how much their music means to us and how much love and support there is for their music. Sadly, many of these musicians rarely hear words of thanks and gratitude for all they do and all they've done to share their songs with us. I agree. That is exactly why we do this podcast. They bring such beauty into our lives and we owe it to them to let them know how much their work means to us. Totally agree. And this is what John does every week on The Hustle. So the next time you're at a gig, make it a point to tell the musicians how much the music means to you. If you know any musicians, thank them. Send a tweet, email, or post to your favorite musicians and thank them all Thank them for all they do, and do all you can to support John and the wonderful work he's doing here on The Hustle. My goodness, that is so humbling. I don't even know who you are, but thank you for writing that, and you gave my whole passionate sales pitch for me. And again, gang, you I say this all the time. Please, if you enjoy the guests that we have on here, send them a tweet, send them an email, find them online, whatever. Just let them know, hey, I heard that interview, and I loved it, and I love your band, and I love what you do. Let's make sure that we share that message, okay? Uh, this one's quicker, I promise. This is from Jacob's... Jacobs S. I think I might know who this is. Excellent music podcast with in-depth interviews. If it's in-depth interviews and well-known and obscure musicians you want, The Hustle is the podcast for you. Host John Lamoureux knows this subject matter very well, and it clearly shows in his interviews. Great stuff. Thank you. I think that might be Andrew Jacobs, and if it is, thank you, Andrew. And then last one, my favorite podcast now, five stars, eye to eye. It's ironic that the only criticism that I've read thus far about the podcast (laughs) is that John too often interjects by saying, yeah, right, or wow. That will be on my tombstone, I think. This is precisely why I love this podcast and why I believe the guests respond with such interesting stories and insights. Nice. Thank you. John is first and foremost a music fan, and his interaction with the artist is more like a fan-artist relationship than a, than a journalist-artist. This ability to put the journalist slash artist, I should say, this ability to put the artist at ease appears to cause the artist to drop their defenses and really open up. Aloha. Well, aloha to you too, eye to eye. I don't know who you are, but bless your heart for doing that. So anyway, those are some really nice reviews we've received lately. Please do uh, us a favor and write a couple more. Uh, next week, I'll insert a longer, maybe midsection here. We can talk about some of the recent requests that have come out. So maybe some people who've turned me down, things I've kind of got in the works, things I'm trying to get going. We'll go from there. Anyway, let's get back to Eddie McDonald. Um, already out of the gate, the song has a different feel to it. There's, you know, you can hear... A little, you can hear some keyboards going on in there. 
Um, the album as a whole is in keeping with the alarm style, but it sounds just slightly a little more diverse. Was that an idea? Was that was that on purpose to kind of expand the sound a little bit, or how do you feel about that one? Are you even happy with Eye of the Hurricane? I had good songs. I mean, some of the songs that I absolutely love. I mean, um, it's interesting that we the band itself were in turmoil at the time. We nearly split after Strength because every single penny that we made as a group, we reinvested into touring. We would go to territories that we shouldn't have afforded to be able to go to because every penny we made, we put back into touring. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't take tour support from our record company because mm-hmm. our record company was tiny. We were an independent, we were always on an independent label and we were licensed to bigger labels. Got it. So we hadn't got the, the major money, muscle and promotion that obviously a lot of acts had. So we actually had to do a lot of it ourselves. So literally, when we finished touring, we hadn't hardly got any money at all. Uh. So it was a case of, okay, it was tough because we'd come off and go, how much have we earned? Mm-hmm. God, nothing, really. Oh, so we would go home. It's, I used to say one thing. We used to, we used to stay in hotels at times because you'd get a really good room rate that we could never afford to eat in. Mm. Oh. So that was, that was reality. So when people say about bands, I often think... I mean, I like to explode the myth because you learn more about the people. Mm-hmm. If Bowie used to do it the other way, where he would always big up and then became the massive star that he always deserved to be. Mm-hmm. But I think for ourselves, we were always kind of really honest about everything we did. And some people love it, some people don't like it, because mm-hmm. I think they want to imagine you are this botanic character. Mm-hmm. But actually, we did it. We were very grounded all the way through the, uh, the career of the band and um, because we had to be because we hadn't got the money to do that. Okay. But we did meet some wonderful, lovely people along the way where we would not have met them had we not invested all our money in touring. Right. So um, we got to play places that we never should have got to, which mm. in a sense was valuable to us because I think that you realize now that the, the underground following that we have yeah. was because of that, that we would go to places that other people wouldn't dare that makes go sense. to. Yeah. Yeah. I Did mean, you... there's so many British bands now who I, I can't believe aren't big globally because they didn't do the kind of work that we did. Really? They're quite happy to stay probably successful in their own area, yeah. in their own sort of like that. And maybe haven't got, again, some of the muscle of the record companies or whatever to do that, but they didn't do that. And I think, like, a lot of the band, British bands built their reputation in the States, especially by mm. working, working, working. And, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I mean, and, and I That's believe it in takes. hard work, so. Yeah. yeah. Did you feel like, um, you know, as, you, as these albums are coming out and we're kind of up to change, and Change Has Sold Me Down the River, which is I think is technically probably your biggest chart hit in the States...
Yeah. Are you noticing? Are you feeling as if your band is getting as big as you want them to be? Is it? Are your are your expectations and hopes being met? They're not. Yeah, I mean, I always wanted Alarm to be the biggest band in the world. Right. I mean, I, every time I wrote a song, I'm thinking, great, I want the world to sing it. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Because I mean, I think most artists do. I mean, it's I might I might be modest. I I just want. If people are playing your music, it's the most flattering thing an artist can have. Yeah. Being ignored is is frustrating, to say the least. And um, there's obviously lots of reasons why artists become famous. And they've got so many artists have one great song. Yeah. You know, you know, so many people have one hit wonders. Sure. And um, I'd like I always wanted the group to have a depth to them that we'd have material that could be played long after we're not here. Every mm-hmm. time I hear a great song from the 50s or the 40s or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, those people, a lot of the time, aren't, they're no longer with us, but yeah. the music lives on. And that was always my sort of benchmark if I would love the music to live on after we're not here. Yeah. And the way you do that is to grow your audience and have that one song or songs that actually do that. And it's a legacy. You leave that for your family sure. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you don't feel like you guys quite got there. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of if you were a kid like me growing up in the 80s, listening to college or alternative radio, there were several alarm songs that, you know, were on your radar. You just buy the standards greatest hits collection and every track on there is, you know, golden. But were they breaking through the mainstream? Does, you know, do the housewives of America know alarm songs? Probably not. It's just the, the kids who were kind of growing up with their finger on that pulse at that time. So it is. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, that's what I'm trying to say. Sometimes the one thing I've realized, um, you can't follow fashion. Mm. I mean, if you, it's one thing you try and do, I think because a lot of people with techniques tend to do it. We had one song where we really pushed the envelope. It was a song called Chant Has Just Begun. very of the time with the technology and often I've realized about technology it's don't let it use you you use it yeah and it's a case of if if it sounds too much like oh it's just it's the new technology then in theory you haven't used it to the best of its ability and originated with it that's the one thing I've learned we only did it once it was a one-off Mm-hmm. And um, that was that was a lesson learned as well, and it's quite good because I think you can make mis- one thing about having a career in music is you can 
afford to make mistakes. Mm. Yeah, good point. And that's where we were lucky. We did make mistakes and we rectified those. And that was, we were very fortunate because a lot of people don't ever get that chance. Good point, yeah. And we did that by all the extra hard work that we put in. So, um, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's it. So it's kind of, it's an honest approach to it. But yes, we, we were lucky to be able to afford to make mistakes. I'll say Got that it. as a statement. Okay, yeah. okay. You know, this, the end of the band was not only immortalized when it happened, but then again, what, I think we're going to coming up on about 15 years ago now when VH1's bands reunited, got you guys back together and retold the story over and over of Mike leaving the band at that show um, without telling anybody first. I know that television has a way to sort of edit, to embellish a good story. Was it that straightforward? Did Mike really just... And he explained in the program what was going on, his perception of some internal politics around maybe Dave Sharp rising up to be the new leader of the band and were the other guys in the band supportive of that idea. And I think that kind of ate at Mike's psyche maybe at the time or his confidence. And so he felt like he should leave. Is that all? Did it really play out like that? I guess is what I'm asking. To be honest with you, even to this day, um, I have no idea. I still huh. don't know why. I mean, I think the problem I think with groups is the fact that they um, possibly both of them got a little bit self-absorbed. And I think it's a good, I tell you, it was a, probably a very, very good time to actually take a break. We probably needed therapy more than we needed mm. to split everything up because I think in a funny kind of way, when you have been doing it as long as we had, I mean, I didn't enjoy the last tour we did because I, could, I knew there was personal elements, you know, there was... Mm. Um, it's it's very easy. It's the same old cliche, isn't it? Really, why bands split up? It's very it's very over money and girls. Yeah, basically. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? And <laughs> you know, the, I mean, the cliche ring. It's, it, the reason everyone says that because it mostly it's always true. Right. Um, but I think sometimes everybody needs to take a chill pill and just you know take time out and do it. Yeah. And um, so when that tour was over, because it was such a bad feeling, you know, traveling in separate, not all separate buses. Um, I think it, it just got a bit stupid, mm. really. Mm. And I think everybody needed a break and probably go off and do their own things. And if they have got their, you know, their own creative juices that they need to sort of get out there, then go and do it. Right. I think that was always my, you know, because I had a book sort of penned ready to come out ready at the end of that tour. Really? You wrote a and, book? Um, I did write a book, yeah. I didn't know this. Oh, yeah, well, is it, it a it, fiction it was, or is it about the band? Ironically, it was never published. Oh, well, that's why I don't know it. It's <laughs> good, a good reason why, yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, um, it, it was strange that I just thought it needed to do some, you know, to do have a breather. And I think it's a real shame that um, the alarm won't ever reform because, to me, it would have been nice to do it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the bands reunited. I think if anyone saw the program, it was written all over my face of how much I enjoyed the experience yeah i mean it was really good it was really good it was um you know we did it without any rehearsal we hadn't played together for, i think at the time for, i can't remember how many years at the time but you know we just fell into it and yeah. um it was really enjoyable to do good good now very honest yeah. yeah well good i um but you mentioned you know everyone taking a break and kind of doing other things it ended up being basically a permanent break did you you mm. couldn't have foreseen that when it happened or did you no, not at yeah. all. I mean, I actually went, when Mike realized Mike had left, I then tried to replace him with a guy called Billy Franks, mm. who sadly is, it became a really good friend and he's no longer with us, unfortunately. He was the actual 
if anybody could have held the mantle to him, it would have been Billy. And mm. if anybody ever heard of Billy Franks, he's, he, he's a really interesting guy. And uh, lyrically as well, he was very motivated. And, I, and, I, and that's exactly it. So I think he was a natural successor to Mike. Was he in but, another band that we would have known at that time? Yeah, it was a band called the Face Brothers. Hmm. And they'd actually, they'd actually played with The Alarm, okay. actually, in, in the UK. And um, ironically, um, is it Prince Harry is a big fan of mm. his, or was a big fan of his. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's strange that we probably could, but it just didn't happen, which yeah. is a real shame. That's too but bad. But to be honest with you, I mean, to me, I, mean, I know Mike sort of goes out under the name The Alarm nowadays, but to me it will always be the four of us. Yeah. And, uh, and I think because that was where the magic happened. Yeah. I you never I mean? got and to it, see you guys back in the day in concert, but yeah. I've seen Mike three or four times mm. since then. And it's always, uh, well, two of those times, I think it was under the banner of the alarm. Now, he seems like about the most earnest, kind, like full of life type of guy. Is is I don't, I'm not trying to ask you to talk trash about him or anything, but... Um, did cancer do that to him or was he always sort of this effervescent guy? Was your, was your Um, relationship ever kind of tense or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, Mike and I grew up together. I mean, we literally lived next door, but one to each other. I mean, it's like, it's it's like a bit like, um, um, help, you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, where we literally, yeah, we would, you know, that's why we got into music. We got into football, we got into sports together and very, you know, Mike is obviously a year above me in school. But we were always very competitive each other as well. Okay. And Mike has always had a... He's charismatic. People who meet Mike are always bowled over. He has got one thing that is a God-given gift, which he's got a basically a memory for names. Oh, really? And it's, it's, it's a gift I wish I would honestly bite his arm off for because <laughs> he, can, he can remember people. And it's such a lovely gift to have. Yeah. It, it's you know that when people come to say hi Mike you'll go how are you doing Pete how are you doing Susan <laughs> and it, it's just amazing and wow. and I was always the shy one because I am completely the opposite really because I struggle and I still do now remembering people's names yeah and um, my short term memory has always been appalling and that's why I write songs because I have to keep going because yeah. I, I'm scared that I will forget it <laughs> if I don't record it right. I've got thousands of tapes and songs and ideas that I still work on now and that hopefully one day we'll see, see the light yeah, of day. Yeah, yeah. Not, not with the alarm written on them, no doubt. Right, but, okay. Um, with okay. Small Town Glory written on them instead, which is obviously my, um, what I'm working on at the moment. Yes, okay. Um, I was going to bring up this up later. In fact, I will, because I want to talk about the post-music stuff in a minute. So let's table the Small Time, small time or Small Town? Town. Small town glory. Okay. I want to ask you about that in a minute. So two questions. Number one, after the reunion show that happens with bands reunited, why is there not more reunion talk after that? Why are you never, why do you not uh, get involved? Is it just your life has moved on and you're too busy as a successful photographer now to go back and tour around with Mike or what's the reason? I don't think Mike wants anybody else involved. Really? That surprises me. I think it, it could be, I don't know why, it could be health, it could be financial, mm. um, it could be control, I don't know. I mean, to be honest with you, you'd have to ask him the question. 
Okay. I mean, because I know that the three of us, like Mike, sort of Dave, Nigel, myself, yeah. would obviously, you know, to play the songs that, you know, you've, you gave, you know, rather a large percentage of your life to, it would be, you know, wonderful. I don't think it would be right, and I don't think people would like if, if um, the three of us went out with a different singer at this point sure, to sure. do it. I don't think it would ring true because obviously Mike's made a statement by still playing the songs, mm-hmm. you know, every night, basically. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would work, you know, I mean, the three of us doing it. But I think it would be very fascinating to see if there was an uprising where people said, look, we want to see the four of you do it. Yeah. And I would love to, honestly, I would love to do it. Because I would, I don't like old wounds. Because it's nice, it's nice to have new memories rather than old regrets. Yeah, I can't understand. I mean, are you not aware that there would be a thirst for the four original Alarm guys to get back together? I mean, let's okay. So let's break this down. At when I saw I saw Mike for as I said the third or fourth time, maybe six months ago here in a smallish theater in Denver, Colorado, where I live. So let's say there were 300 people at that show, okay? And I've seen him in that particular venue twice now. If the original four members come together, maybe you're not doing like a world tour, but I'm guessing you're going to be able to upgrade to a theater that holds twice, you know, 600 to 1,000. That just makes it, is the money that, you know, the money that you would bring in from bringing in all the four original guys and upgrading a little bit, is that not enough, a big enough, is that not a big enough leap to make that decision? Assuming it's even a financial I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, mean, common sense to me says, obviously it would be. I mean, the the view, I think, if we got back together again, it's not thinking, would you go out on, on tour to make money? It's more a case of, we get into the age, I mean, obviously, the stones are amazing because they keep going and going and going, right? Uh huh. But, you know, God willing, we're all still here. We're, I mean, obviously, Mike has really suffered, obviously, with his health through the years, but he's yeah. still going. Um, the other three of us are okay, touch wood. So I think it's also, as much as about the audit, about the group, I think it would be lovely to end it with a goodwill tour of yeah. actually doing it and actually doing it because I think it would actually be really nice to do. I'm yes. To be honest with you. Cause, I I'm mean, baffled um, by this. Eddie, honestly, yeah, I, I love. I, I mean, to be honest with you, I love touring. I, I, sure. I do it now with my work. I mean, I'm always in different countries and I'm always all over the place. And I thoroughly enjoy it. I love meeting different people. And I love, you know, working with other people. Yeah. And it's the same when you, as a musician, you're thinking, well, I'll, you know, playing to a different audience every night. I think, I think there would be an appetite for it. I completely and I, agree. And, um, I mean, I know Mike is just about to release or re-release um couple of albums on his own label um reissue them uh-huh. and i think if if and to me if that doesn't signal that you know in a sense promoting those yes. records again would be now would be the time to do it because if you're going to release the records well then it doesn't make sense why you would do that and then not promote it i well. agree so that's the only thing to me, common sense, it says to me, mm. well, if you're going to do that, you might as well do this. And then everybody's happy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, uh, man, I'm, I'm really baffled by this. It, it seems like if you had said to me, you know, I'm not interested or we don't get along anymore or there's too much bad blood, I would walk away. But it sounds like you recognize that even from a fan perspective, there's a an appetite there to see these guys and for you guys to do it right. I'm I'm kind of shocked. I might have to see if I can track down Mike. 
and get him on yeah, the show because, as well. I mean, it's a good answer. I mean, yeah, I mean, to find out the reason why, I mean, to be honest with you, I still play, I play more now than I did, say, 10 years ago. So musically and proficient-wise, I mean, there's no, you know, there's no uh-huh. issues there at all. So it's not like, you know, un, you know, luck, luckily none of us have got problems in terms of drugs yeah. and alcohol. So um, it doesn't really make sense on paper. But... You know, again, Mike, I'll, say, I'll also stand up and say to Mike, when my first wife passed away, I mean, um, Ooh. Sorry, I, didn't I would know say that. one thing. He actually played with me at her funeral. I asked him, would he, she had a very dark sense of humor. And she said if she was getting cremated, um, and poor thing, she was dying of cancer at the time, but oh. she had a, a wicked wit. And she said, would you basically play Blaze of Glory as the coffin disappears? Uh-huh. I went, you're joking. She went, do I look like I'm fucking joking? No! Went, uh, okay. Right. So I got on the phone to Peters and said, would you uh, do this? And he went, and he said, yeah, of course I will. No So way. I'll, I'll be ever for in his debt. I mean, um, you know, behind closed doors, I slag him off at times. He probably slags me off. But, you know, I mean, to be dead, wow. dead honest, I mean, it, it, it took balls to do that. And, no uh, kidding. And I'm glad he did it. It was, oh, it was, it was good. Yeah. That is I mean, amazing. When we get together, I mean, we banter. Sure. It's just, it just seems to me that the one sour note, I think, to be honest with you, would be, I just think, the business and the politics. Yeah. The politics, I'm not aware of what they are. And the business, well, you know, it, 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 to me, if that's a real shame because if, it, yeah. if that stops stopping it happening, then it seems a real shame. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you just don't want, as I said earlier on, you don't want regrets. You just no. want, that was good. I enjoyed that. Yeah, no And kidding. at the end of the day, why shouldn't music be enjoyable to do? Because Absolutely. you do it for free when you start out. Absolutely. Yep. You know, you, you pick up a guitar because you want to. Yeah. You play songs to an audience because it's fantastic. And then all of a sudden, an audience pays to come and see you. Mm-hmm. Why should everything change? I agree. Um, that's why I mentioned, that's why I was breaking it down financially earlier in terms of you know venue size and and uh how much you because if it's a business issue it just seems like that could be worked out and even if you just did it around europe which would break my heart but even if you you know i think of a band like simple minds who came up earlier they've tour all around europe constantly they never come to the states anymore but it's beneficial for them their fans over there see them why couldn't you guys go out on a tour together you know they still attract big audiences and Spain and places like that, you know? Well, I, I think Mike wants to, because I think basically, because Mike sort of, he runs it, 
and he does it, I suppose, then he only has to pay the session guys. Right, you know right. What I mean? That's what's worrying um, me. A, a, a okay. small amount of money, you know what I mean? And, and they'll go wherever the money is. So, yeah. I mean, um, you know what I mean? So That's too bad. Okay. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. I mean, that's it. That is. I mean, I suppose, okay. you know, there are a lot of artists who do the same. So, I mean, yeah. Is it right? No, I don't know. I mean... Yeah. I mean, to be audience with, I mean, let's, at the end of the day, people want to see Mike play because he's really entertaining. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and a lot of people will say, well, it's not the alarm, but it's a good night out. Yeah. They enjoy it. That's so, it. I mean, they're not to be criticised because at the end of the day, I've been to see some artists who, I love their voices, mm-hmm. you know, and I love their sort of, um, you know, their persona. So, you yeah. know, you actually go and watch them for that reason. So Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. But there again, if I was going to see, I mean, I remember... Last about two or three years ago in London, I think Mott the Hoople basically reformed, mm. who was my favourite band growing up, mm. um, apart from Slade. And, you know, I mean, I, I was out of the country when they were playing. I was oh. devastated. I really wanted to see oh, them live. Man. I know it wasn't the complete group. Sure. But, I mean, Close enough. the nearest of everybody, you know, um, yeah. Mick Rouse was there. Um, I can't remember who else, but somebody told me about, and I'd love to have seen them live. No I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah okay. again. But, you know, again, I, I, I got to see, you know, him, um, Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson together. And that was, to Good. me, one of my uh, dreams. That was, Ooh, that would have been nice. Because I never really, I never got that album out of Mott the Hooper with Mick Ronson on the whole album. I thought, that's the one thing I always wanted to hear. <laughs> never happened. Oh, that's great. I love hearing what my favorite musicians, what their, you know, desires and rock th- dreams and fantasies are made up of. That's awesome. Yeah. Now you mentioned playing the guitar. Now, what? Where are you out? Do you play at like the local pub? What are you doing? No, I mean I put an EP out again last year. That, you did? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's got, um, but basically got it's quite a good response. Actually, it's very very good to say the least. Good. And because um, I wanted to get back into basically recording and playing live because I really do miss it. So I, I wanted a band to me that gave me the same kind of feel that the Alarm had in the early days. And at the same time, because it, you know, it keeps you young. Sure. I, can say. I mean, yeah. I feel as invigorated now about the music that we're doing at the moment than, you know, when I started out, because it's so hard to do it now in yeah. a way. And yeah. it's great because people, you, you know, people of a certain age, how I say it respectfully, mm-hmm. it's not easy. Um, and so unless you've got the name, the alarm to carry, you know, I mean, you have yeah. to basically either pull in favors or the work that you're doing gets the people, the musicians around you because they believe in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So um, did an EP last year, but just basically um, some friends and now basically putting a proper band together Great. With, with the aim of going out and doing gigs at hopefully the end of the year and having an album as well to go with it. That is great. And, good. Um, okay. I didn't even so, know. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to track all this down. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, There's a track um, you can get. It's called High, High, High that's on, it's on iTunes. Okay. Under Small Town, Small Town Glory. Looking down on my life I try to relate Waiting for the man at the pearly gates Fear of light Feel the light on me Looking my eyes staring back at me Never thought today I would live to be The reaper comes calling I'm hanging round to see 
Oh, that's okay. So I was searching for you. So the name of the band or whatever is Small Town yeah. Glory. I mean, I, okay. I never, my ego, trust me, is I'm not, <laughs> you know, I would rather be at the back writing the tunes than at Got the it. front being, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, I, one of the things that I find really interesting to talk to people about are the transitions in their career. And mm. going back to when Mike made that declaration at the show that he was leaving the band, and there had to, now, the alarm, unfortunately, as we've established, was not so massively popular around the world that you could have lived off alarm royalties for the rest of your life. <laughs> right? You can say that again. Yeah. So, okay. okay. So there had to have been a moment there uh, where you suddenly realized, maybe it was after trying to get you know his replacement or whatever, where it was like, I can no longer make a living as a professional musician, I need to do something else. You woke up one morning and had that thought and it led you, I'm assuming to becoming a, becoming a photographer, but how did that feel? What was, do you remember the crystallization of that thought? And then what, yeah, how did you become was. such a good photographer? Well, basically what, yeah, that's very kind. I mean, what happened was basically I had an idea when, when we're on tour, I spent, a, I was hanging out, I think on sunset and strip, and I wanted to get a tattoo done at the time. And I had an idea mm. for writing a book on musicians and tattoos and basically the, why they had certain tattoos. Now, nowadays, it's every, I mean, it's every, everywhere you turn, everyone's got a tattoo. Right. But in those days, it wasn't. There weren't many artists who were. And the ones who were having them done were a bit more edgy. Mm. And I thought, this is quite interesting. You know, like Depeche Mode. Mm -hmm. um, Bowie had one. Guns N' Roses. Bowie had and a tattoo? Yes, he did. Both him and Iman had one. Yeah, I didn't know that. Where? Yeah, I think it was on his leg. I think. Really, so I didn't know that. that. Yeah, I never okay. saw it. I actually approached him to to be in the book. Um, I, I the first person I photographed was Mark Almond. Oh, um, he, he was a sweet bloke. He was a nice guy. Then I did a guy called uh, Mark Manning from who, who was in a band called Zodiac Mind Warp, who mm. I actually liked. Zodiac okay. Mind Warp, but they were a great fun band. <laughs> Uh, really interesting guy, really interesting. And cool. um, so basically, this led me to one thing, is that I was using my eye to take the photographs, but I didn't have the, um, the schooling. And so I decided to go and get educated and go back to college and retrain and actually mm. become a photographer, but mm. doing it the proper way rather than having someone set it up and I'd take the shot. Yeah. So that was my reason the book never happened because it was at the time it was so expensive to do that all the money I had left out of the group I'd spent putting the book together. So okay. I had a book deal in place, but it still wasn't enough to finish the book. Hmm. So I always put it on the back burner, went back to college. But ironically, when I came out, I had other things to do. So um, yeah. that's I went from assisting to um, I used to get, I used to make a very good cup of tea for lots of great photographers. <laughs> and um, most photographers are a bit like every photographer that I've ever met always wants to be a musician. Really? And every musician always probably wants to be a photographer. Yeah. yeah. It's the same headspace. It's the same. You use the, I think the same neurons and neural pathways as each other. It's very similar. Yeah. Huh. And um, so to me, it was a quite an interesting. You know, it's like doing a gig because basically I get all my gear together. I go and do a sound chip by setting it up. I do the gig, break it down, take it home. It's it's very similar. Yeah. And the lifestyle, I, I travel, I go on tour because I go all around the country, I go all around the world. So similar thing. It's very, okay. very 
the lifestyle hasn't really changed. Got but it. you don't get an after-show party. That's yeah, it. no kidding. <laughs> well, maybe fewer really groupies, you do. probably. But, um, <laughs> fewer groupies, <laughs> maybe just as many drugs. I don't know. Yeah, probably more. Okay. Yeah, yeah probably I mean, true. what I've witnessed in the past, yeah, a lot more probably. Okay, okay. And ahead. probably better quality as well. Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> okay. And that's, pretty, and that's uh, how you've made a living for 25 years now or so, right? Is that right, a professional yeah. photographer? That's, That's great. Correct. And yeah. tell me if this is too indelicate a question. I, I asked this to prove a point. I'm guessing you have a better, uh, your you have a better standard of living as a photographer than you did as a rock star. If the tax man's listening, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the point of me asking that is that we, you know, rock stars are always so glamorous, but the guy who's made a living for 25 years as a photographer he can actually pay his bills probably easier than the than the bass player in the alarm can, you know? Yeah, probably. Got yeah. It. Okay. I would say. But you know what? The strangest thing about it is that um, I think if you love what you do, sometimes it does it matter if you pay the bills? Well, yeah. Only when you've got to eat and you've got to put a roof over your head, over your family's head or whatever, then yes, obviously. But as I, I went back to that thing I said earlier, when you start making music, you do it because you love it. Mm -hmm. I love photography and I love music and um, to me they don't compete they just live in harmony side That's by great. side boy if we were all as lucky as you to be able to do the two really creatively fulfilling things that we want to do in our lives and to do it as a job you know mm. you're yeah. one lucky guy um, I was very lucky it was, I, I went it was strange that it's the train of thought that sometimes takes you on a journey Mm -hmm. um, you're never quite sure where it's going to end up, but obviously you, you do a stop in a few odd places along along that way. But eventually, you know that as long as the journey continues and you're enjoying it, then enjoy the ride. Sure. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, now, are you are you selling yourself as like a, a teacher or a trainer for songwriting right now as well? I am indeed. Yeah. Tell me about that. I mean, I like the idea of being able to write a song and trying to get other people to open up their minds to be able to do that. And I think a lot of it is trying to find out what that person's got inside them. And it's like a taking them on a voyage of self-discovery to try and get that out of them. Because I think nearly everybody has got something inside them that they secretly are trying to get out. And it's trying to basically get that out of people. And I, um, I was working with my friend on the EP, Paul, and he's talked about writing songs for years. He's talked about doing this and bits and bobs. And it actually took Small Town Glory to actually get him to start mm. writing songs properly on, and then recording them and actually doing things with them. Because, and I thought, that is the way. And I'm working with another singer at the moment and exactly the same thing is where you're trying to get the best out of people. Mm. And I think as well, I love working with other people because that's what I do every single day. Yeah. And I want to come home that day feeling like I've achieved something else. Every day should have a goal to it. And, um, you know, same with music. I mean, when I sit down and write a song, you know, I, it's a blank piece of paper. And when you've actually filled that piece of paper at the end of the day, it's the most rewarding thing in the world. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I'm writing songs now, better songs than I wrote in The Alarm. And I just love 
I just want to get people to hear them. Everybody will have an opinion because when you hear music at a certain time in your life, you know, whether you're in college, whether you're in your first job, you know, whether you've just, just had your first child, whether you're getting married, whether you're getting divorced, you hear something that registers at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. But often we look back to songs when we were young thinking everything we did when we were young was better uh, because maybe you had more freedom. It was freedom of choice when you get older. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have commitments you have to fill and things change. Mm-hmm. But I still listen to the radio and I still hear certain songs and go, that is a great song, yeah. that is a really good song. And it doesn't have to, everything in the past doesn't have to be better. And I still, that's why I still write songs, because I still believe that you can possibly always write a better song. Yeah. I think true songwriters feel that way. I hear from a lot of people, even people like you who, no offense, are not as heavily in the limelight anymore as you may have been at one time. But that belief that they can still capture something that might move people, move them, move an audience, a bigger audience, whatever it might be, that drive never quite goes away, you know, Yeah. for a lot of them. I mean, I sent a song recently to, um, well, a few months ago to Darius Rucker. You did? And Yeah, and I wow. really wanted him... And I really want him to record it because I think he could, his voice could really do it justice. Uh-huh. And um, I met them um, a couple of years ago when I was in, in California. Yeah, a really nice chap, actually. And mm. uh, I was thinking, this will really suit your voice. And again, I don't know what the politics are of how to get songs to people in terms of how they get them to record them, whether it's a producer or whatever. But... I think it's a really good song, and I think hopefully people one day will get to hear it. So that's amazing. Um, yeah, so if I'm well, I I so writing for other people, I don't mind. I'd love to write. I just like writing with musicians. Yeah. So I mean, um, good for you. You know, it's strange. A mate of mine, a guy called Jeff Trot, he works with Cheryl Crow, and he mm-hmm. sort of written some a lot of the co-wrote a lot of Cheryl's big hits. You know, we nearly got to work together at one point, but he said to me, "Can you use this particular program that we're working in so we can share ideas?" And of course, Eddie had to go back to school again to learn how to use right. the Pro Tools. Right. And um, <laughs> we didn't end up writing together, but my God, I, le- I then learned how to use Pro Tools. And so thanks, Jeff. There it was like, go. okay. Um, it all worked. It's just great because time it, but it took me, I'll be honest with you, it, might, it did take me about a year and a half to be able oh, to sort of imagine. come to terms with it. Oh, I'm still boy. learning every yeah. single day. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm not the most technically savvy guy in the world. I struggle. So, I wanted to ask you specifically about a couple of songs that you wrote. Um, Brian Morris, I mentioned the guy who had uh, uh, sent me a lot of these questions. He wanted to ask specifically about the day the Ravens left the tower. 
In his yeah. opinion, that always felt like an Eddie song to him. Uh, were there any sort of stories or anecdotes relating to the writing or recording of that song? Yeah, there was. That was strange. Um, it, it, it came about, we were basically staying in a hotel in Lancaster Gate in London. I'd had really bad flu. Mm. And basically in this hotel, they kept, they only, they had a thing called, in the days of when it wasn't internet and everything else, they used to have like um like a promo video they used to run in the hotel. Mm-hmm. And they kept running this bit about the um, the Tower of London and the story about the rave. And in my head, it basically jumbled up the whole idea. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I came up with, obviously, the day ravers left the tower, I came up with a title, and then I was talking to Mike about the song and at the idea. And then Mike obviously took the title and then came back with the lyrics, which again, because obviously he, he was familiar with the story and mm-hmm. um, embellished it and obviously put Mike's spin on it. And that was it. So basically I had the melody and then had the idea for the song and then that's how it all came, came together. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, another one he wanted to ask about is Rivers to Cross. Good question. Mm. I can't remember how that's... Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I think again a lot. Of the, I mean, a lot of the songs start with a melody, yeah, and then. Um, but I definitely didn't. I, I. It's definitely a mic title. Okay. Okay. So I think it's a case of melody combining the two. I mean, a lot of the songs used to start. Um, you know, we used to come up with one line. It's a good example. If you go back from day one, I mean, I always thought the stand was a mic song, mm. definitely. Um, big time. I think it was, um, I, you know, I mean, I can't even yeah. think if I did anything on the song, really. It's hard to, hard to imagine it. But, you know, you take songs like 68 Guns. I mean, again, that started with a melody. And Mike obviously had the title in mind and everything else like that. So, obviously, you know what I mean? And that's how yeah. often in, in the early days we used to start. So, I was okay. mainly the, sort of the melody writer of the songs. And then, obviously, Mike would obviously come in. But a song like Marching On, obviously, again, I just, I just had... To, the idea of marching on and the melody. So that, that was a me song. Okay. So, um, so in a sense, you, you have what you call certain songs that you do, um, you know, Soul Me Down the River, again, it was a sort of me song, uh-huh. as was Rain in the Summertime. So it, those sort of songs, I think I'm probably more melodic um, than Mike in my writing, but Mike has also got a really great sense of melody, yeah. um, obviously in some of his solo stuff as well. So, um, okay. You know, it's it just horses for courses, really. You okay. Know? Um, when you wrote, and something I've always wondered, when you wrote, wrote and recorded The Rock, 
Uh, did you realize that you were almost plagiarizing Rain in the Summertime? Did you know? Have you ever noticed how qu- how close those two are? I don't know. I, I disagree. Really? Um, oh, okay. I think. It, do you know what it was? I think the rock. I think it was one song that, to me, I thought it was closer to. Cl- we we have this thing. We all thought we didn't want it to be like "Running Up the Hill" by Kate Bush. Oh, such a good song. Right. Which is yeah. really funny because it had an element of rain in the summertime about it because it was a similar kind of feel. Uh-huh. But melodically, it was different. But the one thing about that song I really liked, I loved, I actually like the song. It's a really nice song. I love song. it, sure. Um, but the one thing, I, there's a guitar figure in the song that Dave Sharp plays in that song on one of the guitar solos that, to me, is magical. Ah. I hear it, and I just went, that is phenomenal. Uh, it's just, I mean, I heard it, I just went, wow, that's really clever. Really? I mean, I, I, I love, I mean, to me, personally speaking, I, the Change album is a long album. There's a lot of songs yeah. on it. And I think it was probably the make or break album. And I think Mike would probably say, if you have an interview him, we should probably echo this. I think Mike was going through a lot. I think he'd lost his father. His sister had been really, had taken really poorly. And I think Mike was struggling to come to terms with everything. I think he realized if the Change album wasn't going to break the alarm, mm-hmm then nothing was. Hmm. And I think he was thinking, I just, and I can't help thinking, was, is life going to be this, is going to be this hard? Yeah. But when you've got your family being ill and you're losing your father and everything else, yeah, life does appear to be incredibly tough. As everyone's lost a parent or a child, then everything you do is dragging your feet through mud or yeah. snow or whatever. It's, it's a horrible world. So to ourselves, it was, well, okay, you just got to keep plugging. But I think Mike was thinking, I think Mike at that point had had enough. Got it. Okay. By the end of that tour, I think he's think, my God, this is really going to be hard. And I yeah. don't think his appetite for carrying on at that point was. I mean, if he'd have known, again, what was to come in future, I think probably it may be his approach to music would have been, and, and the group would have been different, really. Right. right. His illnesses and things like that. Because I think life was going to get even harder yeah, even on his sure own did. so yeah. yeah i mean that's exactly it i think you know when people do lose relatives that close i mean when we played that tour i think there were certain elements of the tour that it was such a right time you know there's one song on it um 
I mean, if you talk about irony, there's a song on the record called No Frontiers. A thousand miles before us Long is the road The mountain high The valley low Our love is stronger Preempted the Berlin Wall. It should have been, you know, everybody. I mean, if there's one song at the time, the whole thing was about change. You could feel something was happening somewhere yeah. in the world. Something was happening, and that's why the album was called Change. It because it, we knew something was about to change, but we didn't know what it was. Everything about the record, if you look at, you know, even from the sleeve to right through to the lyrics, there was something happening, and. Huh. Um, you know, and ironically, everybody thinks now of um, every time the wall came down of David Hasselhoff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ironically, it, it's a shame that chain, um, that basically No Frontiers wasn't the theme song for yeah, the Berlin Wall and, and that whole thing coming out. I think the whole world would have, would have been a different place. Yeah. Oh, man. So. Very and also, true. I think our career would have been slightly different as well had yeah. it been the song of um, the wall coming down and changing the whole thing. Oh, in the, no kidding. Block country. And so instead we go. get Hasselhoff. That's not right. Yeah, well, it's not. No, it, it beats Mike saying to Bono, not Bono, to Bob Geldof one day when he met him in Kings Road, London. He said, what are you working on, Bob? <laughs> and my mate, Red Eye, our friend who asked us to go down the stairs, I think his line said, are you working in a local shop nowadays? Oh, no. And he goes, no, I'm working on this charity record. And as Mike did, he said, oh, good luck, Bob. Have a oh. good night. Oh, really? <laughs> and that's yeah. why there's no alarm in there. Oh, man. So Bummer. there you go. Bummer. It's a funny old world. <laughs> that I mean, is hilarious. You get, you get moments in life where everything... You know, you get that moment of opportunity and you grab it with two hands and other times you just yeah. go, nah, I'm yeah. not going to buy that lottery ticket tonight. I don't feel I'm, I'm not feeling lucky. Uh, so there you have we it. I mean, it's strange. Yeah. yeah you okay. don't know. But All I mean, right. um, I did meet Bob, um, actually kind of ironic as well. Um, I did meet Bob, Bob Geldof once in Kings Road yet again. Uh-huh. And I said, and I was actually doing a book at the time for somebody and in London, and it was like a corporate book, and um, I was getting very handsomely paid for it, which is quite nice, I have to nice. say. Um, and I saw Bob Geldof, and I went, hi, Bob, and he went, yeah. fuck off. No, now and that went, sounds like Bob Geldof, yeah. And I went, uh, Bob, and he went, fuck off. I went, Eddie, and he went, 
oh, fucking hell, sorry. <laughs> I goes, I thought you were a paparazzi. I went, fuck off. <laughs> I'm not a paparazzi. Anyway, anyway, we both had a giggle and then that's we went great. about our day. Oh, so there you have great. it. So there's cool. a kind of, that was a kind of, um, yeah. Full circle yeah. moment. Okay. Full circle moment, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, look, in closing, I want you to tell me just one, your favorite memory. If there if, if you got a chance to meet or play with Slade or Mott the Hoople or Bowie, or maybe it's none of that. Maybe it's something recently with Small Town Glory. What is, when you sit back in your uh, dark room and you're putting your pictures together and everything, and you think, I can't believe this happened to me. What is that thing? Okay. My favorite moment and the most outrageous moment is sitting down with Bob Dylan and Neil Young backstage at Berkeley, playing guitar, I think, at really? that point. Yeah. Wow. You guys all played and together I, at Berkeley, Cal- in Berkeley, California? Was this at the yeah, Greek we Theater? Playing, when, yeah, we took, when we toured with Bob Dylan, um, it was really strange. We only, I only really spent quality time with Bob on the, 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 the last, you know, last part of the tour. Mm. And um, he was this really lovely gentleman. He was an absolute wow. gent. Wow, good. And, okay. um, yeah. And he was very kind, and, he was, and, he, and it, we asked him at the end of the tour. I never wanted to approach him beforehand, I said, about anything, because I know he's a very private person, and he's mm-hmm. um, a nice guy. And um, he, was, he was very gracious, and he gave me his time. And he was a sweetheart. And, I, and that's the thing I think about musicians. I think, you know, we were lucky enough to, to basically, if you take the people we played with, you know, we started off really with you 2 mm-hmm. We then went to play with the Pretenders, you know, um, Bob Dylan, Neil Young. I mean, to be honest That's with you, I, you know, we were just fortunate to be in, in their company. Mm-hmm. And it, they knew that we had something. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think sometimes record sales and popularity and everything else, but to be, you know, I think accepted by your peers, mm-hmm. for me is probably the greatest honor of my career. That they actually that. took time and they, you know, they would they would put us on their bill as such and also support us. Yeah, yeah. So I think that really says it all for me because in it a does. sense, sometimes you get commercial success and sometimes it's justified, sometimes it's, you know, it's probably manipulated. Mm-hmm. But I think by the company that we actually kept, I think that probably says more about the alarm than uh, our record sales, as they say. I would agree. I think that says a lot too. Well, look, uh, Eddie, I'm speaking for a lot of people when I say I love you very much. And you mentioned earlier about wanting to move people with uh, your songs and your music, and you did it. You uh, you and The Alarm have brought a, a lot of uh, meaning and uh, beauty to my life for 35 years. So thank you for everything you've put into this world. Thank you. It's a pleasure, John. Thank you for taking the time out to do it today. It, it makes, you know, it's very, very an honor for me to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. There you have it. Eddie McDonald. Such a great guy. And you know what, guys? I got to be honest. I just was thinking about this. The Alarm fans, you know, like on social media and Facebook and stuff like that, they may never even find out that this is out there because chances are that... Mike or whoever runs all that stuff won't alert them that it's there. I mean, we've seen this happen many, many times, you know? We have Lowell Tolhurst of The Cure on. Well, The Cure fans don't know that he's on the show. Gilson Levis of Squeeze comes on the show. That doesn't get alerted to the Squeeze fans. So it's a shame because I think any Alarm fan would love this. 
So do what you can, please, guys, to, I don't know, retweet or post or say you're grateful or whatever you need to do. I think Alarm fans would enjoy this. In fact, it's it's almost a little nerdy. It's probably better suited for Alarm fans than casual music fans. Anyway, thanks to everybody. Thank you, Eddie, for doing this. Thank you, Brian, for the request. We're going to close it out with one of my favorite Alarm songs. This is Shout to the Devil. I love this track. Now, next week, a quick teaser. We're going to hear from a band that had one of the biggest and most ubiquitous hits of the 80s. In fact, the song is so ubiquitous, you probably don't even like it. (laughs) Uh, But it's there. It was huge. They had some other hits that weren't quite as big, but they were very good. And it's a really interesting conversation. I think you guys will like it. Okay? Uh, If you guys don't know by now, you can find us on on Facebook and like the page. You can send me a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We put out new episodes every Tuesday. And a huge thanks to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich, for doing this with me and for producing such excellent podcasts. Thank you, buddy. We will see you guys next week. Stop!